for February 20th, 2023. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 764. And yet it moves me. It's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging around together and making intellectual points in perfect, concordant uh, harmony with one another. We're kind of like a, we're kind of like a chamber pontification group, uh, all together. I'm Matt Rather. I'm, I guess, the, what, the violist in this, uh, you know, in this chamber ensemble. Um, yeah, the, I, I like that. I've always liked the sound of, uh, like the sound of a viola. And I'm here with my good friends, Mark Lee. Hey, Mark, how are you? Um, I'm holding down the, the low register in the cello. Nice. And, uh, we got Jordan Stokes. Hey, Jordan. Hello, uh, trombone over here. So this is a terrible and unbalanced ensemble. <laughs> <laughs> There's almost no literature for this group of... <laughs> This, uh, this group of, of instruments. Um, the, uh, yeah, uh, so, uh, Pete Fenzel is off this week. He is listening to, uh, transcendently listening to a piece of music on, on headphones and he can't, uh, he can't join us because he is so enraptured by the sound of, uh, what he's, what he's hearing. But this episode started with a little bit of trash talk. Uh, Mark Lee, you deployed some trash talk. On me, I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you're aware. That's yeah. all right. <laughs> I'm wa- hey, Matt. What? I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm walking to New York City. Here, but- we- okay. I'm going to drop the accent. I cannot possibly sustain that for any more than that. Okay. So, um, uh, longtime listeners of this podcast probably aware that I live in New York City, and I think New York is great, the greatest city in the world, as uh, you might have heard in the little musical called Hamilton. Uh, Matt rather loves to talk about how Los Angeles is the bleeding edge. Of America, um, we have we have everything at, ten years before you, including our conductors, yeah, including including conductor. Yeah, so that leads us to the the um, the, the breaking news uh, that has inspired this topic, which is that former or well, at least the current uh, um, maestro conductor of the L.A. Philharmonic, Gustavo Dudamel, a superstar in the classical music world, uh, of which there are a few, kind of a transcendent uh, cultural character, um, has uh, has announced that he is taking the job. At the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. That's right. New York got him. Oh, sure. Yes, I will. I will like see the, that uh, LA is is the bleeding edge in this area. Absolutely for sure. But uh, it's a big get. Everyone's really excited yeah. about this here. Everyone, I mean, like a very subset, a very small subset of people in New York. They are all very excited about it. Myself included. The uh, the uh, bleeding edge of America is hemorrhaging musical talent. Ayo. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. So we're going to need a, yeah, we're going to need a suture kit. Someone's going to have to, uh, you know, I don't know, suture us up with some violin strings or something like that. I mean, if we're going to continue this like, uh, in the blood metaphor, how do we account for the fact that Gustavo Dudamel came to L.A. from La Sistema in uh, Venezuela? From El Sistema in, in yeah, and was the like... I think was the became like the principal student conductor or youth conductor of the the like the pinnacle orchestra there. It's like really in Venezuela their system is like a farm team of of youth orchestras, regional youth orchestras that then feed into the main one and it's like which I suppose is in Caracas. I I actually don't know where it is, but like the um uh 
uh, yeah, and it's you know kind of world class. Uh, there's a, a huge amount of of resources that that go into this thing. And actually, one of his achievements in L.A. was set finding funding a combination of public and private funding to set up a similar youth orchestra, though not the whole like feeder system, but like uh, something similar in in Los Angeles. But yeah, man, like sure. when I, I thought when he was hired, he became one in a line of the great t-shirt conductors of Los Angeles. Like, I feel like, you know, in the nineties, Esa Pekka Salonen, who was the music director of the LA Phil and, and a composer, um, was, uh, was really a pioneer in the, you know, uh, maestro in a t-shirt, like in a black short sleeve crew neck t-shirt, you know, the, the hands swept up above his head, his eyes closed in rapturous ecstasy, listening to some music, you know, his back arched hysterically, like the baton held aloft. Um, and that was, uh, you know, that was really kind of the vibe, uh, of that, like the, the real, they were really kind of leaning on the, leaning on the youth and vigor, um, mm. at, you know, aspect, which I, I feel like fits the, the character of the city. And then in finding, uh, Dudamel when he was 25 or 26 or something like that. And, and like when he was hired, d- just to be clear, just in case you were wondering whether I am a, a small, petty, bitter, hollowed out shell of a man and always have been. Um, I just like, I absolutely hated him when he came because he's the same age as me and he was, you know, phenomenally gifted and, and, uh, successful. So obviously I resented him and, and everything good that he's, he's ever done before or since. So, you know, that's, that's how I felt. And he, like, he just, you know, uh, joined the uh, the uh, cavalcade of great uh, Los Angeles T-shirt conductors, like you know, bounding up on onto the stage to take the the podium and like you know, jumping from the auditorium up onto the onto the apron of the stage and sort of you know, uh, bouncing around and and gives really good like I feel like one of the the functions of a of a modern American orchestra conductor is to just really give good face while you're listening to the while you're conducting the music to really you know like highlight where the dramatic passages are and whatnot. I, I, I don't know. I just, uh, I think it's, uh, it's pretty good. And, uh, a big loss, a big loss for the city, though. I suppose he's aging at, at, you know, in his early forties, he's aging out of the role and we need, we'll find now a high school student, you know, from, from somewhere else in the world in order to, to take the thing. And then finally, uh, you know, in another 10, 15 years, the, the, the LA Philharmonic will be conducted by a baby in a crib, uh, just waving its, its hands randomly around, uh, you know, as it, as it, uh, listens and responds to the music that the orchestra is playing. I don't know. Good for you, Mark. Good for you. You know, good for you. Yeah. Hopefully good for Gustavo as well. Um, and we're not, this isn't going to be an entire discussion about you know, this specific piece of news or even like the specifics of the LA and New York Philharmonics, but like, you know, the, the, this, he's, he's getting into a tough spot. You're right. Like the New York Phil, um, you know, has has seen better days. Um, there is a sense that he's been tasked with like, you know, a, a, a nearly impossible job of like really rejuvenating the orchestra. Not that it's like uh, I'm making it sound like it's, it's not worse off than it is, but the expectations are basically he's going to be the next Leonard Bernstein and like, you know, will make the New York Philharmonic this like real 
cultural institution and a part of the quote unquote cultural life of New York City in a way that it hasn't been in decades. I don't think this is going to actually be possible for any, even someone with the star power as Gustavo Dunamel, but I guess we'll see. But it kind of like it brings us to like our broader discussion point of, here of like, you know, what's the deal with classical music? Well, Jordan, in I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say, Jordan, I know you're a, you're a big fan of Bernstein. Like what would it take to fill his shoes for any music director coming, coming to New York or anywhere these days? Yeah, man. I mean, Bernstein was, uh, was great. Uh, and had many unique gifts, but he also lived in a particular cultural moment that has gone and will not come again. So, like to to fill to fill Bernstein's shoes, what you would need is one to be alive at a time when primary school music education, you know, in grades one through five, had not been gutted across the country, where uh, mm-hmm. we like. You know, Bernstein is kind of contemporary with the big explosion and boom of American of the American popular music industry, right? Like, you would need to go back in time and not have that be itself a like 50, 60, 70 year old institution that has an absolute stranglehold over every radio format, every like recording industry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the imaginations of America's youth, all that kind of stuff. Um, Bernstein, I think, was wonderful at taking people who, like, kind of knew a tiny little bit about classical music because they'd had it in their childhood and making it come alive for them and matter for them, right? Uh, Can someone like Dudamel do that same thing to people who have had zero uh, exposure to classical music in their childhood? Like, probably not, you know? And that's not because Dudamel is worse at it than Bernstein is, although he might be. Like, Bernstein was really unique. But even if he was, even if it was just like, you know, Bernstein in a time machine, Bernstein clone, I don't think that in this particular <laughs> moment that that it could happen. And it, like in large part also because when Bernstein is doing all those things, um, part of getting people on board with stuff that he would do, like, you know, clearing all the seats out of the hall and putting down a giant rug and having like basically a free concert where you could come in and sit on the rug, you know, and like it's it's very all very groovy and happening in 60s, man, um, like getting buy in for that depends on having right thinking liberals believe that getting the broader world interested in classical music again is a worthwhile use of anyone's time. And although there are still a lot of people who believe that, and I would probably count myself as one of them, there are also a lot of people who like do not believe that and believe, in fact, that it's the opposite, that classical music is essentially a, you know, patriarchal, colonial, uh, insert your list of, you know, disapproved adjectives here, social phenomenon, which is uh, probably not going to go anywhere soon because, you know, neither is patriarchy, but which we certainly don't want to be trying to like <laughs> – expose more people to it, for God's sake. Uh, And I think that the fact that, you know, if you try to get the whole city excited about classical music, they might very well say like, well, you know, why not get them excited about Broadway instead? Why not get them excited about, you know, about about like rap, right? That uh, New York City in particular, probably there's a, a, a bigger cultural tie to the city there than there is to anything with classical music. You know, you say that, Jordan, like to to that specific point, like I think the New York Phil, if not New York Phil, like a Lincoln Center affiliated uh, cultural institution has done like, you know, symphonic notorious B.I.G. Like that is a thing (laughs) that we do here now. (laughs) So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
and, and like and and more power to them in a way. But I think that like you, you would need to have that consensus behind classical music that was there for Bernstein, and it is simply not going right. to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it is true that he lived in an age of, uh, you know, of sort of great white middle brow men of letters, right? Like I, I'd put him in a, in a, oh, I don't know. I've, I'm probably Updike is the wrong, is the wrong guy, but like, uh, I, I can't even think of people, people who you'd see on, on PBS masterpiece, you know, people who, who you'd see on in in that kind of mid-century sort of middle brow post-war Mr. Rogers uh Mr. Rogers sweater um sort of uh, cultural cultural moment and I yeah I I agree that it it probably wouldn't be uh wouldn't be possible to to bring it back again. I I have a question though when we say that like classical music probably can't come back, what do we mean by classical music? The the easy joke to make would be like, well, there's oh, you're talking about classical music? Do you not like baroque music or romantic music or, you know, we we mean something um the the classical music has a classical period which is just named to to uh make pedants gleeful and everyone else roll their eyes i guess but but we mean orchestral music right like what with them what with them violins and and uh and you know them them fiddles and them uh cornets and stuff like that uh and uh the the people the people are wearing tuxedos um is it possible to zero in on a better definition than that or is it uh are we stuck with are we stuck with that so so you mean the backing band for barry white yeah the love orchestra, right? <laughs> we really, <laughs> or, we really... Or, or you mean herb Al- herb alpert or you know the, the orchestra for, for the book of mormon <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the the question I, I would I would like answer your question with a question. You're sort of asking what is classical music? What is when you say something that is classical, Matt? Outside of music, what do you mean by that? Uh, I mean it belongs to uh, antiquity, right? Like, uh, or I, you know, I guess I guess what like what is uh, you could you could talk about like classical Sesame Street, I suppose. Uh, you could talk about right like classic. Well, uh, classic and classical, Jordan, do you think that's a distinction with a difference or without one? I mean, I think there is a difference, right? Yeah. So, like, uh, you can think of this is a classic Sesame Street episode, but, like, you could think of the classical era of Sesame Street, and that means something else. Or uh, a big uh, – an example that is absolutely used is people talk about classical Hollywood cinema, right? Mm. And that's different from a movie being a classic. Like, uh, you know, The Breakfast Club is a classic, but it's not part of classical Hollywood cinema. But just uh, so, what like, is classical Hollywood cinema? Is that, like, 40, you know, 50s like Ca- Casablanca. Casablanca yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. The studio system, the late 30s, the, you know, yeah. So, uh, there was a there was um a, a circulating around the Catholic Church for a little while. There was like a, a pamphlet um circulating around the Italians that that said some that was called something like uh the fourteenth greatest of centuries. And it found, you know, great favor among the uh the kind of the leadership of the Catholic Church. And I feel like among a certain type of film critic, there is like a you know, the nineteen thirty, like nineteen thirty eight greatest of wait, the, the- you're saying the 14th century is the greatest of centuries? Greatest of centuries. Man, ain't y'all have three popes at one time during the 14th century? <laughs> <laughs> Got popes on popes on popes. 
um yeah man and uh i mean i guess maybe that's what makes it the best right pope density was never higher um so okay like there there is there is classical hollywood cinema there is a sort of classical period of of sesame street so like it it what it rhymes with sort of like uh the pinnacle or like the paradigm of or you know um the kind of like the best exa- the 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 archetype of right like the the ur uh the ur instance of something yeah. like that so so like the the claim would be that classical music is the uh, by which we you know generally when people say it they mean the the uh the composition practice of the of european composers of the 18th century right is the uh, you know, is the pinnacle or paradigm of of musical achievement, and yeah, okay, that poop is racist, uh, no doubt, um, and sexist, and like all all kinds of ists, uh, and and bad, but but like, um, I, so maybe maybe we should call it call it something else, right? Like uh, antique orchestral music. <laughs> uh, it doesn't sound. It doesn't quite have the same normative yeah, ring to it's it. Tough. And like even like defining it against popular music also doesn't work, right? Because of the aforementioned notorious B.I.G. example, and then also like you know John Williams' music, which is symphonic and orchestral, but arguably is also like has crossed over into a sort of pop music. It's almost like a genre of itself. That's a kind of a bad example. We'll we'll, we'll probably come back to that. Well, it's you, like we, we keep coming back to like you know we, you, you you know when you see it, it's about like the presentation of it, the dress the instruments, the sets of instruments, right? And to be clear, also like solo piano um, of a certain type, right? It falls into this broader bucket. Well, even sure, right, yeah. Our, our, our Beethoven piano sonata is classical music, like, and by this definition, sure, of course they are. But uh, like, are they of the classical period? No. And are they orchestral music? No. So, you know, yeah. gotta gotta work on our definition. We we uh, definitely probably need to, so definitely probably need to circle back around to uh, music written for films um, or other media, I suppose, because it's probably by like sheer volume, by tonnage of paper, uh, though it's all on iPads these days so by by just like number number of notes uh you know too many notes mozart by sheer number of notes probably more orchestral literature these days is written for for media than for any other venue but uh you know but uh still we we don't have an answer we don't have an answer to our question help us help us uh figure it out jordan where, where are you at with this I mean, so this is something that uh, I, I teach music history as my day job, right? So this is something that actually, uh, given given that academia is quite liberal, if not as liberal as uh, as you know some culture warriors on the right would claim, you can imagine this is a thing that consumes our time, right? Like, what do we call this stuff? Because the label of classical music does sort of imply, oh, this is the best, this is the quintessential instance of it. And then it does turn out to be just this narrow little slice of white European males, uh, you know, with aristocratic patrons, no less. So, like, that seems like garbage. So what do we call it? And all of the answers that you come up with, they all have little problems with them of one sort or another. People sometimes say, you know, Western European art music of the common practice tradition or something like that. Uh, and <laughs> that really rolls off the tongue. 
Yeah, and every every word of that right has been added in because someone tried to do something simpler, and then someone said now 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 right. So someone said, well, how about we call it art music? And they're like, but it's not art music because you have art music. If that's a meaningful category, you have art music from all over the globe, right? And we're only looking at the stuff from basically Western Europe. You know, Russia counts, I guess, but uh, but basically Western Europe. And then we say, all right, so it's Western European art music, and then then you have to add more qualifiers, and you keep sort of going down the line. I think that's the one that most people who like teach classical music for a living will probably end up saying something like that if they're put to it. That it's like it's this historically bounded tradition of uh, high status music that comes out of Europe, not really honestly in the 18th century, although we do call that like the classical era. It's like 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries rolling over into the 20th. And anything later than that, there is like a continuing classical tradition, but there's also what's called new music. And that's people writing music that's sort of historically continuous with classical music for a while, but isn't really absorbed into like the same concert venues and the same performing ensembles and so on. So when you look about look at someone in like Bernstein, right, who's writing music and then also conducting, as a conductor, he's doing classical music. The stuff that he's writing, uh, you might call it classical music on some days, on other days you might decide to call it something else. Gloria TV, doesn't... Gloria TV, Gloria, Gloria yeah, yeah. TV, Gloria. He doesn't have the same status as Beethoven, as being just sort of like an unquestionable part of that that canon, right? Uh, so th- I think that that's basically what people say is that there is this kind of historically bounded contingent. It's not a not a not something with an essence, but we have this list of pieces that count as classical music, and we can, with some heavy lifting, expand that canon so it's less racist and less sexist than it used to be. But we're still left with basically like this pile of stuff that we're calling classical music. Uh, yeah, and, and, and even when you do that, that with yeah. And then, like when you when you use that uh, the descriptor of high status, right? That still kind of gets you back into like the classist, racist, sexist, and all the ists, the problematic ists that come associated with this, right? But like, I, I would yeah. love to hear you expand a little bit on what you mean by high status, like other than like you know, rich people dress up in fancy clothes and go to a fancy <laughs> part of town to hear this to hear this music in a fancy concert hall. Well, so this is uh, let me let me do an exercise that I do with my students all the time, right? Which is that um, the idea of like high and low cultural status is something that we intuitively understand, but don't necessarily intuitively agree with, and mm. it's sort of an infinitely fractal scale, meaning that no matter what little slice of it you're in, you can always continue to subdivide it. And one example that I often give is I'll say like, all right, so you know, which is which is higher status, right? Classical music or country music? And they will all say, like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, classical music is higher status. It doesn't necessarily mean that I like it more, but I understand that it's higher status. Then I'll say, okay, so now let's forget classical music exists within country music, right? What is an example of a high-status country musician and a low-status country musician? And they'll kind of, like, often not be able to respond to that. And then I'll ask, okay, who is higher status, Johnny Cash or Taylor Swift? And that's mm. an interesting one because there will be, you know, statistically, there will be some Swifties in this classroom. Right. Uh, but even 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 the Swifties understand that Johnny Cash is higher status somehow, sure. right, than Taylor Swift is. Um, and and you kind of go down the line. And it seems to me, at least, that like our, our sense of the status of something is like a uh, 
a kind of intuitive feeling that if you were to grab people on the street and ask them whether they approve of this or not, not necessarily whether they like it themselves, whether they sort of think of it as basically good or not, then the things that are high status are the things that they would all approve of. We may not approve it of ourselves, right? But we carry around this sort of model of the culture in our heads. And within that, there are certain things that are high status. And you can do the same exercise that I did with uh, with Johnny Cash and Taylor Swift. You can turn around and do it within classical music as well, right? Like, which is higher status, the symphony or the opera? Or who is higher status, Richard Strauss or Johann Strauss, right? They're both classical composers. Richard Strauss is way, way more high status than Johann Strauss is. Uh, so, like I say, it's, it's a sort of infinitely sliding scale. Sure. Wait, 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 wait. Answer the orchestra versus opera, the symphony versus opera. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting one. I'm not, I'm not entirely that, um, sure. Yeah, I think that today, a lot of people would probably say that opera is higher status. You go back into the 19th century, and overwhelmingly, the symphony is higher status because opera is like the is actually popular. <laughs> <laughs> it's like profitable mm. the opera at that time. And therefore, because it's kind of for everyone, therefore it can't be as sort of uh, recherche and special <laughs> as the symphony. Let me, let me just add another piece of current events into this discussion here, since we brought up specifically brought up the opera. Um, the Metropolitan Opera in New York City, now that is, they're in some tough spots right there because they are doing the thing that a nonprofit, a cultural institution is never supposed to do, which is dip into their permanent endowment funds and start to cash that out to spend it on like fixing the opera. So they're in some tough times. So yeah, that is that heaven is for them being uh, yeah. higher status. The fact that they're <laughs> dipping their endowment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they've, they've said that they're going to be like radically reshaping it, right. Commissioning a lot more yeah. stuff. And yeah, the, I mean, opera is, uh, well, you know, like every part of classical music, it's it's dying and has been for thousands of years now, right? And and will continue to die probably into the infinite future. Um, the the British comic fantasy author Terry Pratchett has a great line about opera somewhere where he says like the idea of trying to make money on opera is incredibly stupid. That's not how it works. You put money in. Opera is the thing that you get out. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of true of classical music more generally <laughs> that's so good it's it's true of live theater also but uh you yeah. know it's, i digress um so we're yeah so we're talking about this uh what is classical music right one of the definitions that you could give uh which comes from like the, the kind of the notion that oh it, it is classical so it really is the best right is that classical music is art um and live theater is an interesting example there too because like theater is also art if classical music is art, then should we should we try to keep it around? Like, why does art even matter? I mean, like, are we getting into like, if it's not classical music, it's like not art or not as artsy? Is it like the art continuum? Like, are we talking about a continuum of artsiness? Artsiness? Um, that's it. That will that would be one question, right? That you could say, right, okay, like, maybe if I'm just like if I'm just plucking my banjo and playing you know, American roots music, right? Is that not art? It's a different well, kind of art. I mean, I, I think you're you're kind of doing you get into like the the sturgeon rule thing, right? Where like 99% of uh, toothless yokels plucking on the banjo is going to be garbage, but but the one percent toothless yokel is going to be something transcendent. Yeah, well, it's well, it's because only uh, you know I don't know the the whole I was listening to to what the Harry Smith anthology of American folk music, and it's you know um, highly it, high variance 
in terms of like what's included in in that famous compilation. And I was thinking like, is this, I mean, is this the classic uh, Toothless Yokel music? Because it's all we have left, right? Like these are the only historical recordings of, you know, outside, I guess, the Smithsonian or the Library of Congress or something like that, that that it's all, I mean, it's all we have left. But like, is there a difference? The more I was thinking, I was thinking, Jordan, of a kind of, uh, contrarian, like, uh, stand. I, I would, t- I was a terrible student to have in any class. And I, I would continue to be in your class, professor. Um, because, uh, like I would say, well, okay. So what you're telling me is that the more useless thing is always the higher status, uh, the higher status thing. And I think there's, there's, when we're talking about like music as art, right? Like it's very often the things that we think of as art are things that are, are drained of their, their sense of occasion, right? Of their, you know, of, of a kind of instrumental purpose towards, ha, instrumental, um, an instrumental purpose towards the, right, towards the thing. Like what's, what is, what is artier? You know, the, the fanfare that I, that I composed out of my thoughts and dreams or the, you know, fanfare, fanfare fair that I uh, wrote to, you know, commemorate the inauguration of the president, right? That is, um, yeah. that's, it, it's... The, the, the fanfare that you wrote to introduce the NBA on NBC, right? Right, so there are three, yeah, there are totally three three levels there that you're, uh, that you're talking about. And, you know, to, and also like what is, you know, an abstract painting that's meant to be hung in a gallery versus like, you know, painting as ornamentation, like a fresco or a, you know, a, a painting meant to decorate a religious space or a painting meant to, to, you know, decorate a home or an aristocratic space or a public space or something like that. Like what is, you know, what is the artier, uh, what is the artier of, of those things? Um, and so you, you know, I would have, I, I would have pointed out that like there seems to be a, there seems to be a, um, uh, a correlation between things that we think of as higher status or, or you know, artier in this, in, in this connection and things that are, are, you know, drained of or, or sort of severed from their, uh, you know, their sort of instrumental, their, uh, what, uh, what Aristotle called it, what the final cause, the thing that the thing is for, you know, yeah. uh, that, or their, what, you know, what we might call their kind of their instrumental use. Yeah, a fascinating example from the the deep history of classical music is that the first couple of hundred years, you're basically talking about Gregorian chant, which is 100% instrumental, although it's 100% vocal. But it's uh, it's not <laughs> art in that sense, right? It's it's just music for the practical business of worshiping God, right? Uh, it now gets performed in concert and has been drained of that religious significance for those concert performances. Uh, and does that make it? Does that make it more art? There's a super cynical way of understanding this, which is to say that it's kind of like how the evolutionary explanation for peacock tails is something like by showing off that like I've eaten enough bugs or whatever it is that peacocks eat <laughs> to grow this like incredible fireworks display of a tail. I have demonstrated that like, I don't even need to use my calories on stuff that matters. Right. Like I can, mm-hmm. I can do something dumb, like grow this tail that's bigger than my entire body <laughs> and iridescent and so on. And I still didn't get eaten by a lion. So therefore lady peacocks, <laughs> 
get with me, right? And that it's, it's a flex. <laughs> yeah, no, I find that. And, and, and art more, more broadly is basically that kind of evolutionary display sort of translated into the show, social realm where – yeah. Originally, this music was the property of aristocrats who don't have to do anything all day. They can cultivate their artistic taste and do things that are useless. And eventually it gets like carried over into the uh, the fancier type of middle class person who wants to show that they, like an aristocrat, can afford to spend a lot of time engaging in stuff that doesn't matter. And that basically carries forward today where like, you know, I, I can go to a liberal arts college and take a lot of liberal arts courses, including – you know, the kind of courses that I teach about the history of classical music. Uh, and I can do that because I have the kind of family connections that I'll be able to get a high paying job anyway. Uh, and therefore my taste kind of marks me like the big flashy peacock tail as someone who can afford to be useless. As with, as let, with, me try to, let me, let me try to um, uh, expand this metaphor here. So like from the perspective of like enjoying and consuming music. So like, you know, I, I could go to, let's say a, a killer's concert and like, you know, uh, just, you know, sing along to bangers um, because that is like an easy thing to enjoy. But um, my flex, you know, I'm going to spend my, my calories and my money and time on something that is like harder to enjoy. It doesn't give the same sort of uh, like obvious visceral thrills that I'm going to set, like pay arguably more money <laughs> and then go to the symphony instead. Is that kind of uh, in, in keeping with your with your framework here? Yeah, yeah, and then one there there are different ways of thinking about it. One thing is that uh, the other people who also went to the symphony concert, right? They see you sort of putting in this work to be moved by something <laughs> that where you can't just sing along with the bangers. Oh man. And they, they appreciate that, right? And and you see this in them as well. And now you're kind of like a, a brotherhood of of the sufferers who have all <laughs> sat through like do, doopy old Beethoven when you could have been singing along with the killers. And through that shared trauma, you bought, right? And now you know that they're kind of the right kind of person rather than the wrong kind of person. Now, oh, man. Oh, so yeah, I was just going <laughs> to... Let's bring it here. Like to be clear, like you know, most of the times, not all the times, but most of the times when I've gone to the symphony, you know, um, it is it's not out of a feeling of work. It is there because, like, you know, I actually do enjoy this, and like, yeah, you know, I, I feel like if I had to work that hard to get you know enjoyment and like an emotional reaction, you know, from a, a nice piece of orchestral music, then I wouldn't be there, right? Like, you know, I, I uh, they, they are they they're not not bangers okay what i'm saying yeah yeah and and this is i think one of the strongest arguments against this super cynical account of what art and classical music are doing which is that but but i do love it right like you know it's almost the um the and yet it moves thing except it's and yet it moves me right uh and whatever kind of historical set of circumstances and class conflicts and whatever came to create this situation where orchestras exist and the music education that i had as a child exists and even like super difficult music like i don't know bartok's music for strings percussion and celesta, which I picked not because it's a really hard piece to make yourself listen to, but because it's like recognizably modernist and quote unquote difficult and yet an absolute banger that I would sing along with if I could. Right. Uh, like the emotional experience that I have of listening to that in a kind of unanswerable way rejects the notion that this is some kind of uh, posturing where I'm showing that I am more, you know, more useless than those poor people who have to work all day or something like that. Uh, and I think that's a, a pretty 
pretty solid argument, honestly. Like, I don't know of a, a quick refutation for it, for the people who want to just be kind of grim sociologists and say that classical music is all about signaling to other rich people that you are at least culturally rich. I mean, I, the problem there is that all, right? right? Like, is, is also about signaling to other, other rich people that, that you are culturally rich. But like, I, I would, what, what I would, you know, I don't know. The, thus I refute Bishop Barclay and he kicked the rock. Like, uh, the, the thing that I would say to those grim sociologists is like, what else is there? Like, being a grim sociologist. <laughs> You know, is is something that you do to signal to other grim sociologists <laughs> that you are suitably grim, right? You are sociologically, uh, you are sociologically uh, grim. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think that another another kind of. Um, almost sort of like jujitsu throw where you use the argument's own force against it is to say that. So there's all these things, not just classical music, but like art museums and the the kind of like indie rock scene where you're going to really grungy clubs and seeing a lot of bands that you've never heard of before who are just like, you know, touring for the first time or whatever. And you're actively seeking out music that is unfamiliar to you. So you can't sing along with the bangers, but you care about that and all this stuff, right? Like all of these useless arts actually that stuff does seem to have a pretty like clearly defined sociological role where we feel the need to immerse us ourselves into these quote unquote useless spaces on a regular basis, almost like, uh, almost like doing laundry or something like that, right? That we're like, if we if we haven't done it for long enough, then things start to stink for us. <laughs> and like, uh, <laughs> although at the moment, as we're engaging with it, we're like, oh, there is no use to this. There is no cultural role that this is playing the way that there is a cultural role for Gregorian chant. Like evidently take a step outside of that and say, oh, evidently immersing ourselves in the useless is really important for our culture. Right. And you could imagine there might be some culture somewhere where that that doesn't happen. But in ours, it definitely does. And then classical music is just like one flavor of of this kind of space that we, for some reason, feel the need to immerse ourselves in like pretty constantly over the entire course of our lives. Sure. We're not. I mean, for goodness sake, we're not Ferengi. Yes. I mean, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we are, we are Americans, I, I suppose. Uh, the, uh, yeah. the other, the other one I was considering was, was going with Nicole Kidman. You know, we come to this spice to be moved. We come to this spice to listen to the bangers of classical music. We Somehow come- heartache feels good in a place like this. In a place like this. <laughs> heartache feels good in a place like this. Um, but, but it does, right? Like, well, know, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's like, I think actually there is probably some sort of like social psychology literature on how the, like the emotional transportation of, of art forms actually does have an instrumental, instrumental purpose is not, you know, useless in terms of like bonding as society. Or I, I like your metaphor a lot, Jordan, of sort of doing the emotional, doing the emotional laundry, you know, like, cause there are things that you can do with like, um, 
there are things that you can do that sort of connect you with an essential humanness that sort of ground you in like in real experience, you know, that like, um, yes, in the, in, in every sunset, in the face of every child, in the, um, no, like there, you know, and you can sort of tell people, you can tell people who have not, who are a little bit emotionally constipated <laughs> because they have not, uh, they have not, uh, visited the, uh, the uh the emotional lavatory I suppose, <laughs> which is you know either the concert hall or the the theater or the uh the art museum or the novel the library like what you know whatever it is yeah. whatever it is for you they really ought to have gone down to the useless bourgeois artatorium and gotten a cleanse <laughs> yes <laughs> so, I, I mean so let's, let's let's take a moment here to talk about like you know how in what ways are we at least in the realm of this type of music that we're talking about i.e classical music um <laughs> how are we going to the uh the, the bourgeois um you know artatorium <laughs> like have you guys you know taken yourself to the symphony hall recently Do dude you, like, we had dudamel like, really all in- these years we had dudamel you know <laughs> i know you have yeah, yeah yeah and i did you know pre-kids but pre-kids pre-covid like yeah I, I, but not frequently go to new york phil but i would go like you know a couple times a year you know, it's or so but like like, like, like the other question i have though is like you know how are you listening to this because that's a very rare occasion sort of thing right like are you putting this music on while you're working in the background? Do you kind of like sit and like deeply listen to it on, on a on a on a car or public transportation commute? Like, how are you guys experiencing this music? What What, what do you think it is? Lo-fi hip hop? I mean, I don't listen to it while I work. I I, uh, I mean, I, I I do to be clear. <laughs> I actually know. Yeah, I know. I actually know a lot of people like you who practice like you, where there is sort of orchestral music, very often film scores. You know, which tend because yep. films have you know super dramatic moments in them like their their dramatic literature right the music will be supportive of a uh dramatic story and so it will have some sort of catharsis uh in it at at predictable cadences um and that like uh people really like like listening to this and given that you know given that it is probably like the the modal orchestral work is a film score in in 2023 that like uh you gotta it's definitely something that we should should sort of cope with i don't i don't know mark don't you don't you find that when you do that like sometimes you know you listen to to the the composers who have like a great gift for melody you know who have really interesting themes and stuff and then don't you like find that there's a lot of stuff that's just like da 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 Right, and it's like oh, a bunch of you can you can say Matt, you can say his name. It's Hans Zimmer, right? Like we all know, we all know that. That's okay. It's Brahms, isn't it? Like it's like I was like you discovered a lot of like really low intervals in the low strings, like you know what I mean, and like you can kind of and and minor seconds and stuff like that. It's like a lot of the times I want to like listen to film composers and be like, congratulations, you've you like you've you've discovered you've discovered the trick, you know, like what else is there? And do so you gotta like do you have to to like unstar those things? Do you have to thumbs down them so that the algorithm I mean, learns I, I, that you want the interesting I, stuff? Well, no, because I have like, you know, very laboriously, meticulously curated my own playlist of stuff that I, I know specifically that I want. So the A, there's that. And well on the other hand, also B, like I found a string quartet playlist on Spotify that has probably like, I don't know, 
a hundred uh, string quartet compositions in it. Um, but here's the real sad part about this. Tell, tell me if I'm a bad person, Jordan, Matt. Okay, so like this string quartet uh, playlist has like you know dozens upon dozens of Mozart, Brahms, Beethoven, etc. You know um, string quartets. Um, and every once in a while, I forget to turn it off of shuffle, and so I just get this like a random <laughs> parade of intricate string quartet. Um, string quartet is thrown at me <laughs> like completely out of context and it's also like yeah. while I'm like you know working on my spreadsheet um, yeah. is, is this doing the emotional laundry <laughs> like <laughs> what's going, what is, what's going on there if it's being reduced to pure background noise yeah and I mean I know for w- with me because of my particular job the question of like so do you listen to classical music while you work sort of loses all meaning <laughs> right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. But I know my, my, yes, my wife. Yes, by she, definition. Yeah. Like she, she's listening to uh, a lot of film scores and stuff like that or classical music precisely because it doesn't have words and words distract her too much from like the work that she needs to be doing. Um, so in, in that sense, it's like it's kind of easy listening. Right. I, I don't know if it's um, if you're getting an actual transcendent encounter with with capital A art in that kind of a situation, Mark. Yeah, yeah but then, def- I'm definitely not. No, but then sometimes here's, here's, it- what I, here's what I will do. Just give one one other example, so I'm you know I'm not coming off as a complete cretin. Um, called you know art uh you know uh, artless, um just knuckle dragger here. Um, so this this is gonna sound very cheesy, but every once in a while, you know what I do? I walk around New York City and I'll put on Rhapsody in Blue and just kind of you know take it all in. Now I, I get that, awesome. that also like. That like you know, kind of like that is inevitably associated with Woody Allen, and like you know, it's kind of uh, tarred in that kind of way. But like, let's let's just put that aside for a second, you know. And when you hear you know the soaring melody and the see the the skyscrapers and hustle bustle of the city and things like that, like that is a transcendental art, art artistic moment. Sure, I'll give myself that. That's and and I mean, I w- I was gonna say even before you do that, sometimes like you're listening and there's a really big you know consequential cadence coming up in the piece that you're listening to, and it just happens to be at the moment you hit enter in the particular cell of an Excel spreadsheet, so that your your pivot table resolves itself and springs into meaningful analytic life in front of you as there's a huge statement of the tonic elaborated over the course of several bars and it feels like the sun the sun has risen over your laptop you know that that's like uh that's a i i never have that because i you know three words microtonal lo-fi hip-hop that's my that's my shuffle playlist and so it doesn't Ah. ever doesn't even have any any uh uh, solid resolution at any point. It's just like his his music is arbitrarily long, you know, and even the the, the changes from one track to another don't seem to make a lot of don't seem to make a lot of uh, impact on me. I'll put another example out here on, on the table here. Sometimes, um, uh, because I, I cannot really tolerate a lot of like dramatic television in my life. Um, because I don't have the emotional capacity for it and because uh, uh, of, of time and various other things. Like what I'll do is I'll, I'll put on, we mentioned PBS before, right? Like, you know, the PBS uh, Apple TV app has a great selection of or orchestral classical music. Um, I'll put that on. I'll sit there. I'll watch it. I'll kind of, you know, intently, then I can listen closely and watch the very skilled musicians perform their things. I'll do that for like 10 minutes and then I'll start scrolling on my phone. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, well, just sure. like music starts with in the background, like yeah, I've, so that, I've, there's another mode of enjoying this music. I found this like I texted you guys the other day a uh, a YouTube video of a young piano player in the Clyburn competition um, last year, I guess. Uh, in the I, I always thought it was the Van Clyburn competition, but is it the Clyburn competition? Um, yeah, I, Van was the dude's first name. He's from oh, Texas. Got it. He was, I knew Texas and I thought it was the Van Clyburn. Okay. Okay. But, but it's not, it's not like something that's been going on in, in Austria for, you know, three centuries or something. And, and, you know, started by Baron Van Clyburn. (laughs) No, it's a guy probably made a lot of money in oil or something. Yeah, but 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 probably uh, like literally every young kid who gets into classical music, the first time they hear about Van Clyburn, they're like, "Oh yes, from the long, you know, Graf Van Clyburn from Clyburn in Germany." No, no, he, he's a Texan pianist named Van oh. Clyburn. <laughs> that, 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 is, that is what I assumed it was. Van, yeah. like the thing that you would airbrush a Pegasus on. <laughs> and he, well, anyway, and so like all the and there's you know money behind this thing and and great notoriety and you know probably like setting you up for a stable career, a you know a solid lifetime as a classical pianist, which is you know a, a brass ring that very few people get to grab. And so I I don't know. I saw I saw this like like transcendentally gifted. Um, young man play, uh, one of, uh, lists, uh, lists, lists, uh, transcendental etudes that was, you know, kind of like blindingly technically difficult. But the thing that struck me was that how he, he managed to really make it sing and like how the, how the music and the kind of the different aspects of, of, uh, of this particular piece, like, uh, came, came out and I like I texted it to all of you guys. And I feel like that for me was, um, that was more like watching a like a weird athletic clip on TikTok or something like that, you know. Because, <laughs> just because it just because it was so hard, just because it was so like the piece was so hard. I'm sure I I have no doubt this young man could play like a a slow, simple, easy piece in a way that would would ring tears even from my heart of stone. But like the. Uh, it was, there was a, you know, and I guess this is always the case in a lot of, in a lot of things like, uh, virtuosic, uh, there's a virtuosic component to it or something like that. Right. Like, oh, okay. You know, oh, he's the best rapper. Right. Like, cause I don't know, he raps really fast or something like that. Or he's, he's the best violin player or he's the best, uh, gymnast or, you know, what, sorry, I'm trying to think of like arts things. I don't know. In theater, sometimes they're like patter songs, right? Like where the whole point is that you say like a lot of words really, really fast and, and stuff like that. And so like the, there is this kind of like athleticism component to, to a lot of arts. I guess I shouldn't get too down on myself for appreciating or enjoying that aspect of it. Well, yeah, and again, if you go back into the the deep history of classical music, the notion that the the right way to listen to it is to like almost go into a a trance where you're just there thinking about the music as music and having your your soul bared or whatever, like that idea is probably about two hundred years old at this right point. To say. Yeah, that's a that's a yeah. romantic idea, right? Yeah, right. And so meaning that the whole era that we really call classical, like the Mozart Haydn era, like that that was not something that they ever encountered. No, it, and, the, the point was like, hey, these are some really nice fountains. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like <laughs> 
certainly I think that there are like musicians who care about it on a very deep level and so on. But like the, the normal way of consuming it as someone who is like a fan of this music is to have it on in the background, right. And sort of build it into your daily life. And I don't know, there, there's a canonical piece of classical music called the Goldberg variations by Bach, right. Or at least the, the story I think is that, uh, it was commissioned by a guy who, an aristocrat who had bad insomnia, and it was literally like music to put him to sleep. Mm. So it, I don't wow. think that anyone should ever feel guilty about uh, scrolling through their phone while they listen to classical music or or watching someone, you know, that music that List wrote, like the way that list made his money is people paid him to play the piano. And there was always a kind of like, look at the amazing three headed woman with a beard aspect to it. Right. That like it's, it's, it's prodigal. It's, it's a, uh, it's monstrous. It's, it is a feat with a capital, like a, like as a feat of strength. Um, or I don't know, like feet picks or whatever. <laughs> like that, that, that's always been part of the the value proposition with that kind of repertoire. So I don't think that you're doing any kind of disservice by saying, "Hey, look at this weird thing that I found." Yeah, like, list you know. list. Uh, you know, funny, funny, right? Like his piano teacher was Cherney, um, who has a you know book of of like I think piano etudes that 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 I got when I was a uh, young little kid, and. Um, and his uh, composition teacher, if memory serves, and Jordan, fact check me on this, but please, is was Salieri, right? Who taught him all of that really old, you know, 18th century stuff. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I think that like you're, it is good. It's good to sort of point out that like, yeah, he made his living as a, you know, as sort of a freak of nature, right? Like as, as kind of a high wire act, uh, as, you know, as a young piano prodigy. And like he wrote, you know, he was a teenager when he started, when he started writing music that still, you know, that still kind of circulates and is played today. Yeah. And, and there was a whole kind of like school of those people. Like List is the one that we still know about today because there was a little bit of uh, substance behind the show. But there were dozens of people that were just show all the time. You know, the uh, the, 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 the Michael Bays of the piano or something like that. And they would mostly write etudes for themselves to play in concerts or like the whole point of it is just that it's almost impossible to like wrap your fingers around and people would watch them do that, you know, and then clap and throw throw coins essentially. Not like a like a trained seal, you know, like uh, uh, looking for fish. And now they do it in Texas, you know. Now they yeah. come from all yeah. over the world. They come in Texas, well, and, this- and when you win, they spray you with oil. They have crude oil <laughs> in fire hoses. They just spray the whole stage. It's impossible to play the piano after. They spend millions of dollars in Steinway D piano concert grand pianos every year. They destroy them with oil, and then they set the auditorium on. On fire, and you're telling me that this has any kind of redeeming cultural value, and is not just a show of conspicuous consumption to show how rich they are in Texas. <sighs> Follow that, anyone? <laughs> no, that was amazing. Um, <laughs> I was just, I was just typing into the the chat to make sure that we at least consider. And when you win, they spray you with oil as a title for the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's bring this back. Let's bring this back to Dudamel for a minute, right? Because, uh, like, my Dudamel, as you say, 
he's um he's incredibly charismatic right and and gives good face and does kind of good interpretive dance there there's a there was recently like a, a Twitter thread going around classical music Twitter where someone said like, you know what? I don't believe that conductors do anything. Change my mind. And a lot of people got really annoyed, but generally like what the conductor actually does is essentially all taken care of during the rehearsal. And when they're there in the concert, their job is essentially to perform interpretive dance. Mm-hmm. Like every now and then you're sure. going to have yeah. a violist who needs a cue, but like basically it's just interpretive dance. And, but that's really important. Right. And I think that it's interesting to think about the idea of Dudamel as kind of like a a prodigy, someone who like he started when he was really, really young, right? And a kind of like sideshow attraction or something like that, where people come not because they actually have a deep profound connection to this music and are going to like walk away feeling like they've, they've done their spiritual laundry and they are, you know, ennobled in that slight sense or whatever, but come because like they, they want to see Dudamel. They've heard that Dudamel is a thing to see. Cause like that, that's kind of why the Philharmonic's going to have hired him. Right. Is not to, to do something nice for the people who are already going to the orchestra concerts on a regular basis because they believe that it's spiritually ennobling. It's to draw in the rubes who don't go to classical music, right? But might if we have this Dudamel guy. Well, I had you know, something to see. When I was working in, in theater, uh, in nonprofit regional theater a lot, like the, you know, Lord, Lord, League of Resident Theaters level theaters, right? There was a, there was a big, uh, you know, chasm between the people who, who were like, Hey, we need to draw the rubes in to see the crap that we're doing. And the people like me who were saying, no, we need to do entirely different crap that, the, you know what I mean? That the, the, the people who, you know, live here, uh, the real people who live here actually, uh, actually care about, right? And like, I, I will say this for him as a, as an artistic leader, as opposed to like, as a conductor of, you know, 18th and 19th century or orchestral music right like as an artistic leader in terms of programming he's been really good in la in uh, you know kind of shoveling up some new crap um it helped that like there was a new concert hall there was a lot of energy that that kind of came uh around it like it's a shame you couldn't have stolen him from us uh a few years ago mark when like the new lincoln center auditorium opened you know the the uh would have been great to sort of start that with like a new uh a new voice or something but like you know um still like i think there is a i think there is a, a kind of sincerity to him in terms of like hey creating programming that that uh, you know, speaks to people beyond just kind of rehashing the same old tired stuff and like insisting that because it's, it's art, because it's art, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, worthwhile. And if, if you think it's poopy, then, uh, you, 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 sir, are the, are the poopy one. Just, uh, um, give some credit to the New Yorkville and the, the kind of the broader Lincoln Center institution as well. Um, in terms of reaching out and trying to connect to new audiences, right? As opposed to just going to do the same stuff over and over again, right? So they are doing so in like a, a lot of different notable ways, not just the programming, but also like with the new spaces you mentioned before that just opened up. Like the law, the lobby um, is not like you know a hallowed space that is only to be used when patrons are going to see the symphony for their big night out. Like it's open to the public. You can go there and get a drink, you can get a cup of coffee, you can like bring your laptop and work, which I do do. <laughs> 
pretty frequently. Um, so there's that. And there's also like, you know, a lot of um, a program they're building and like explicit acknowledgement of what we talked about in, um, you know, especially Spieler's West Side story of like how they just freaking raised, you know, a Puerto Rican neighborhood, San Juan Hill, um, to build, you know, this by and large, you know, cultural institution for by and for white people, right? So there, there's a whole, um, just a lot of acknowledgement of that um, kind of painful history there um, that is also getting integrated into the programming at Lincoln Center as well, too. So, um, yeah, I guess kind of, you know, start to end this on, on a positive note, right? Like, you know, everybody's aware that you can't just keep doing the same stuff over and over again and expect these sorts of cultural institutions to continue to survive and thrive and be vital parts of a city's quote-unquote cultural life. So um, I am legitimately very excited for Dudamel to come uh, and to hire a babysitter. So I can go well, and see but, him. But can I ask can I ask both of you one more question, which is like to to survive and thrive and be part of the city's cultural life, right? So on the one hand, it's just the question surviving is like selling enough tickets to make yourself uh, break even. Um, but let's let's kind of forget about that because in a very real way, all of these classical music institutions, like they run on charity, either from the government or from private donors. So let's like, imagine that the symphony is funded because some rich old person dies and gives them money. Right. What would it mean for Dudamel to make music that is thriving and is part of New York's cultural life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I think it would be to make music that we're, we're, you know, that like, uh, has a place on your Spotify playlist, you know, alongside the commercial music that, that you like to listen to. I mean, take at least as a provisional definition, let me, you know, uh, let me put in that to that, yeah. to, to make music that people want to, you know, that people want to listen to on a, on a regular basis, you know, to, I mean, to lead a, a performing body that people want to write music for. People, people, the people of New York want to write music for, and then like some sort of like, I, I don't know exactly how this would work, but like I think we started talking about music education, like the participatory aspect of this, so that you know the communities, like their com- community members, somehow like actually become a part of the thing. I think that's really interesting that like you know. Mark, who you've worked in and around city government in New York City for many years now, right? Like your answer is kind of, well, it needs to actually connect to like the citizens of New York in some kind of way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Whereas Matt, although I think that your answer is like, there's a lot about that that's true, just making music that people actually want to listen to, right? The fact that you said the lens is Spotify, and I, I wanted to sort of jump in and say, like, but hang on, that's not that's not New York's culture, right? Mm. That it's just kind of no, nowhere from nothing, right? That uh, having having Dudamel on your Spotify, if you're in LA and he's still on your Spotify, then does it matter that he left LA to go to New York? No, yeah, that's a that's a good point, and and. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I mean, and so what does it mean? But you're you're asking, I think, a more fundamental question rather than what does it mean to to succeed in this role? Like, what does it mean in in the area in the era of music that is kind of from nowhere to everywhere, right? 
to uh, to be in a place to have like a city's um you know to have a uh, an orchestra that's that's aligned with a city you know i mean there there are certain certain ones of those what uh uh off the top you'd know better than me off the top of my head new york uh cleveland san francisco la right like maybe chicago mm-hmm. That tra- Chicago's in there. That transform and, and like Cleveland, who knew? But like you know, uh, Cleveland, um, the uh, that that like transcend being kind of pri- primarily for uh, uh, for like a region and kind of uh, speak and kind of work on a world on a world stage, right? And yeah, yeah, and and like you, where it's not that this is the symphony that we go to because we want to go to the symphony, and this is the one that we live near, but like where it's sort of even if you were tone deaf, right, and didn't care for classical music, if you were broadly involved with quote unquote highbrow culture, you might be kind of proud to have the New York Philharmonic in New York. Although, as Mark says, they've, they've actually had some reputational difficulties <laughs> in recent years. But uh, you know, like you want the idea to be that oh the new york philharmonic well that's like a world-class symphony and i can be proud of that the same way that i'd be proud of the local sports team or, or anything else in that nature yeah and and that like i so i think like specifically to succeed in that role you kind of have to be you kind of have to when you do stuff in new york it's it's the yankees you know what i mean like you kind of have to like succeed at the level where you're you're not just uh you're not just kind of doing the kind of the block and tackle of of being good in your region you also are kind of 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 succeeding at a at a level that's that's where someone would say like when i bought in in the 90s when i was a teenager i wanted to to listen to stravinsky's right of spring because it was you know i don't know a discordant and i had heard of it right like and uh so great like okay what do i what do i go buy and like i through whatever avenues of information i had at that time i determined that i wanted to listen Listen to Pierre Boulez uh, conducting the Cleveland uh, Orchestra and their recording of of uh, Rite of Spring. I'm, I have no idea how I settled on on that one in in particular, but like I, it was a destination thing. It was like not a commodity. I get yeah, it was not a kind of a commodity classical music experience. And I guess like the thing I'd say as the leader of a culture and cultural institution uh, uh, like this on the world stage is like success means elevating the stuff you make beyond you know fungible classical music experience into you know something that's more like like destination viewing it's not uh you know uh it's not tv it's hbo is what i'm trying to say and and i think that there's something in the classical music scene in particular that sort of like demands that because as it becomes capital a art and capital u useless it also becomes universal rather than parochial or local or anything like that and if say dudamel were to come here and like embark on a really intense partnership with New York City public schools so that like every school kid in New York goes to orchestra concerts on a regular basis and they all get like clinics and lessons with the various principal players and those kids right grow up with a deep appreciation for let's let's imagine that this is like a, a perfect world where it's not just classical music they're also playing various other kind of musical traditions that are sort of adjacent to it you know film music certain kinds of jazz yada 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 
and a whole generation of New York City children graduate with a broadened sense of musical possibility, right? But he never makes any recordings that would be destination listening uh, that that like some kid in, you know, let's say like Spain, right, is going to say what recording of the Rite of Spring yeah, or sure. whatever should I get? Let's get this one from New York. There's a sense in which I think the people that hired him probably would be pretty annoyed by that if he if he if he kept it local and actually plugged into hmm. the city like that was his job. No, but you got you like, got uh, por qué no los dos, right? Like you got to do you got to do both in a in a situation like that. And I, I for what it's worth, Mark, I think you were getting an artistic leader in this particular dude, Amel, who is uh, 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 capable of actually of actually functioning on that because, like, I think that that it's. It's a tragedy. You know, one of the ways I would refute the, uh, the grim sociologist, uh, strawman that we, we conjured up earlier was saying that, like, there are a lot of ways of, of peacocking. Like, there are a lot of ways of signaling status. And, uh, a lot of them, like, are better than, more efficient than, more effective than, uh, you know, 300 year old orchestral compositions. Um, you can get a lot more bang for your buck. Like, there is an evolutionary process where, like, something, something Jordan said about, like, lists surviving out of you know uh, his peers in his milieu because like there was some there there you know there there a lot of the stuff that has come down to us has been subjected to kind of like an evolutionary pressure and a lot of it you know fall fall away what is what is in inessential and that like g- giving people I don't know. I feel like giving people this patrimony, uh, it's, it's really hard to kind of decolonialize the language, right? Like patrimony, not, pa- uh, inheritance. Giving people this inheritance, uh, of, you know, artistic, of, of human experience that belongs to them, you know, uh, is, um, I don't know, is like, uh, is vital and, and is good. The, uh, when, like the, the, um, one of uh, my poetry teachers used to say, uh, "When when you are a writer, every writer is your peer, right?" And giving giving that, giving, I just think that's a huge gift to give to uh, to to our our children. Not to get too sentimental about our children, but to to give to ourselves and to our our culture. That uh, you know that that um, that that these things are available to you. That they belong to you. Uh, in a, in a particular way and not, not in the way that kind of like museum pieces, you know, belong to whoever, whoever stole them from Africa. No, like they, they, they belong to, to all people in kind of an infinitely reproducible way that can, that can, you know, I don't know, live and develop in, in your heart. Um, we might we might have to leave <laughs> there because uh it's getting a little late but let me say uh thank you very much for everyone who uh, who has listened to our symphony our unfinished symphony all the way to the end uh thank you very much to jordan and to mark who uh have uh, embarked on this uh, great long piece of music uh, with me, you you will find the playlists, various playlists and recordings of things in the uh, in the show notes for this episode. These are some show notes you should uh, you should check out. And if you have particular feelings about classical music, uh, there'll be a link to join the Discord. You can join us. Uh, that's where we uh, these days mostly have uh, our discussion. So uh, we'll be back next week with more overthinking with the the next movement in the overthinking it podcast. Till then, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.
Wait, if there's another movement of this, that means that we can't applaud after we finish this movement. <laughs> I, I there too am in the habit of there standing are, up guys, after you every guys, podcast. There are rules. Applauding wildly. Wait, that's not what everybody does when they listen to us? <laughs>